Hello everyone, welcome. I'm Dr. Brett Heisman. I'm a senior lecturer in psychology at York St. John University. And I'm very happy to present to you this month's podcast in conversations in social justice, brought to you by the Institute for Social Justice at York St. John University. So today's topic is going to be about participatory research, particularly in the context of autism research. And this builds on uh, research that I'm currently doing at the moment, working with a charity called Matthews Hub, which is based in Hull, East Yorkshire. And I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by both Carl Cameron, who's from Matthews Hub, and also uh, Sammy Williams, who is currently working on the project and has completed her master's in research with myself and Lorna Hamilton, and is also a member of Matthews Hub. So we've got some fantastic expertise here to talk about this very critical and hot topic going on in research at the moment. So I thought I'd just hand over and let them introduce themselves. And perhaps you might like to also add one interesting thing about yourself as well. So uh, Carl, would you like to go first? My name's Carl Cameron. I've worked in the field of autism for around 25 years, both in this country and in the Republic of Ireland. I received an autism diagnosis around seven years ago, and I was diagnosed as an ADHD about four years ago. Um, I have a master's uh, degree in autism, and I am a, a qualified teacher. I taught health and social care at the College in Lincoln uh, for a number of years, and I uh, currently teach on part of the um, uh, social work uh, programme at the uh, University of Hull. Um, within Matthews Hall, uh, I'm the lead peer mentor and I'm responsible for um, a training and development, which you know involves putting on workshops across the city and then East Riding of Yorkshire. Oh, and one interesting thing about me, uh, yeah, tell it in Leedsvenska, I speak a little bit of Swedish. So that's, uh, I drive everybody mad with it, but uh, I, I need to be able to practice somewhere. So I'm unfortunate, I practice on my family, but uh, they're, they're picking it up slowly. Brilliant. Thanks, Carl. Really impressive to hear as well. Why did you learn Swedish? Was there a particular motivation? I've always wanted to learn another language and I had a year that I had to take off because I had financial difficulties paying for my master's degree. So in the middle, I had to take a year off and I had nothing to do for a year. So I learned Swedish. But that's how it started. I've been speaking about five years now. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Excellent. OK, Sammy, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Sammy Williams. I'm uh, an assistant on the Sandbox project with Brett and I've recently finished my master's degree at York St John with Brett. I uh, did a master's in the experiences of adults with autism as well. I'm also a member of Matthews Hub. I uh, live in the area and I'm also autistic myself, so I attend Matthews Hub. I'm about to be in an opera. Well, it opens next week in the Pirates of Penzance. It's the first dress rehearsal tomorrow. I'll be playing a pirate. Excellent. Okay, and then myself, I just guess I should do something interesting about myself. I have been learning how to build a stone wall recently, which is way more complicated than you think. A lot more engineering going on. I bought some reclaimed stone from the farmer that lives opposite me, all completely different sizes, which has made my task much more harder than it uh, should have been. <laughs> um, and uh, what I thought would take a couple of weekends is taking months. Um, it's, yeah, hard work, but um, fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm from the Peak District originally, so I know what a good stone, dry stone wall looks like. They are a, a joy to behold, aren't they? 
They are, yeah. And there's a high degree of pride because there's only one street in my village and everyone, there's a cafe opposite, so everyone passes. The Jubilee celebration last week, when I was introducing myself to other villagers, uh, they were like, oh, you're the you're the stone wall guy. He's <laughs> been building it for ages. So, so I'm now notorious. So yeah, a lot of pressure, my first wall, and it's very mm -hmm. visible to the village. Our project at the moment that we are running at York St. John, and it's a, it's a multi-expertise project, so it's with Matthew's Hub, is called Research Sandbox. And the idea of this is a sandbox, for those of you that don't know, in programming circles, is kind of a, a safe space for you to test and explore ideas. And we really like that concept in the context of doing research. And one of the reasons the motivation came about for uh, developing this project of research sandbox and thinking about what research could look like if we were to co-design it with autistic people is that there is a longer history of research not being aligned to autistic priorities and also potential types of harm that can develop when you don't include the voice of the communities that you research. So that's some of the background for uh, what initially motivated us to do this. But of course, it's always good to take a step back and think about uh, some of our basic understandings first. And so first of all, first topic for today is what is autism and how has our understanding changed about it? Thought Carl, I'll go over to you for uh, this one to start with. Autism is a um... A neurological difference that's present from birth. Um, uh, autism isn't something that occurs post-utero. It presents what well, we talk about heterogeneity in autism, that autistic people are all very different from each other in some ways. We're perhaps more different from each other than we are from non-autistic people. Everybody kind of wants a nice, clean version of what autism is. They want to be able to put it in a box, and it's very convenient to be able to be able to look at you that way. But it prevents, presents very differently in different people. And also, as well, autism isn't something that's fixed. It's something that changes over time. So something that might uh, be different or difficult for somebody early in their life might not be so difficult later on, and vice versa. Along with what we think of the, the core features of autism, which is differences in social communication and social interaction, and also what we used to call social imagination, that insistence on sameness, a, a dislike of change, a, a preference for routine and for structure. Uh, we also think about the sensory differences in autism. So for those people who won't be able to see my face on this podcast, I wear a pair of dark glasses most of the time. Well, in fact, all the time when I'm not wearing a really dark pair, when I go outside a proper full pair of sunglasses, and I don't wear them because I think they make me look cool, or I've got a thing for Stevie Wonder, or I'm a Roy Orbison fan. I just really can't cope with bright lights at all. I've also got to difficulties being able to filter sound out. So uh, if I'm in a busy environment like a cafe, uh, not only can I hear the person speak opposite me, but I can hear everybody speak. I can hear the cars outside, I can hear the coffee machine going. I can hear all the chairs squeaking, I can hear knives and forks rattling around on plates, and I hear all this all at the same time, and I have real difficulty being able to filter out all this background noise and be able to concentrate on what the person's saying. It's like listening to an untrue television sometimes. It can become quite an overwhelming thing, and it's an experience which is common for a lot of autistic people. I think when we have difficulty with one aspect of our autism, it appears to sort of magnify everything else. And when we're unable to be able to manage that, because all, uh, the environment which we find ourselves in will dictate 
over life chances or, or perhaps over a beer to cope one particular day. The environment's a really important thing and how that's kind of managed has a, a big impact on autistic people, how we work, how we learn, and uh, generally just kind of like the quality of our lives, I guess. That, that would be my sort of initial sort of introduction if I wanted to tell people about the core features, what I thought was important and kind of like a soundbite or as could get. That's what I would be talking about. Brett. Brilliant. Thanks, Carl. Sammy, did you want to add anything to that? I don't think so. I think, I suppose the main difference that I had difficulty with people not understanding is the differences in executive function with uh, autistic people, obviously. Um, and what and, does executive function mean? So it's to do with cognitive uh, ability, which regulates a lot of things like switching tasks, beginning tasks, being able to deal with multiple tasks at once, that kind of thing. So it means that beginning a task, even like, you know, doing laundry or something can be immensely difficult, even though nothing involved in the task is in any way difficult or beyond a person's capabilities. It can make things like uh, regulating, like how you switch between tasks, how you prioritise things, very difficult and it means I know myself it means when there's more than one thing to do that can get very stressful things like that will build up and uh, even if all of the things are eminently doable and don't actually pose any kind of problem and I think I know people will some can sometimes have a vague idea of difficulties in things like executive function and uh, understanding but will often kind of not assume that that is because I come across as uh, I don't have any intellectual disabilities and uh, and the likes. I'll come across as what people will describe as high functioning. Now that's not a very a very good label, and it's not what people really should be using. But it's how people, in the layman's term, would describe me. They don't assume that I'll have difficulties with things like that. And then when they find that out, it kind of I can often worry it changes how people will think about me and that kind of thing. Whereas if people had a better understanding that it is just a an encapsulated difficulty I have and it and and lots of autistic people have and that it doesn't actually impact other areas of my functioning you know it's uh it is something I find that people don't tend to know much about unless they've got experience with from themselves or someone they know. Our brains are sort of like, I always think like a bit like sort of like air traffic controllers, you know, you think of like <laughs> air traffic controllers, you've got planes coming in, planes coming out, you know, the, you know, they've got, there's all sorts of priorities that need to be done. There's different weights of importance attached to all these things, so there's not going to be a terrible plane crash somewhere like, you know, <laughs> you know deep in our subconscious, we start to do all that executive functioning even before we woke up, you know, what days today, what what do I have to do, what do I need to sort of prepare and to sort of triage, you know. To be able to executive function effectively, the three things you really need to be able to do. You need a working memory, you know, you've got to be able to remember what it is you were doing and what order you kind of need to kind of do do things in, all that sort of, you know, not, it's not the same as a rote memory, autistic people are traditionally very kind of good at. You need... Uh, inhibitory control you need to be able to stop doing what you're doing and be able to move on to something else you know mental flexibility you need to be able to adapt to change every areas which autistic people traditionally don't excel at yeah. you know and plus which like if we get really absorbed in something you know we have our you know sort of our interests you know it can become all absorbing 
Yeah, yeah, it's very difficult to, to switch away from something. Yeah, 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 it is. And things that need to do kind of like done. We are the Marmite people. You know, we're either completely and utterly into something, totally invested in it, or we can't be bothered. We're no grey areas, nothing <laughs> in between. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you both for uh, providing those perspectives. And I guess in terms of the background of, you know, how understanding of autism has changed over time, there's a really good article by uh, Bonnie Evans, which talks about where the term came from, originally sort of being coined in, I think, 1911 it was, to describe a type of schizophrenia, because children were observed as being really lost in their own imaginative worlds. But it, it's gone through many different transformations in meaning as it's been used by different disciplines that have different norms and assumptions about you know what the nature of autism is and so moving into a uh, clinical literature made it much more uh, pathologized and in terms of the history of how our understanding of autism research has developed one of the main challenges that we're grappling with today is that you have a very long history of doing research and using what's known as the medical model approach. So the medical model is a model that says there's normal functioning and when you know something goes wrong there's a deviation from the norm that requires some kind of intervention or fixing to bring it back and that works very well for biological physiological processes but there's a bit of a grey area when uh, you're talking about the difference or what's being termed abnormal is actually part of who someone uh, is. It's part of their identity, it's part of their orientation uh, to the world. And so there is an ongoing debate, which we're not going to solve here in uh, this particular <laughs> podcast, about the fact that there are different perspectives on autism and how to approach it. One of the ways in which we are framed as researchers in the research we're doing at York St. John is the neurodiversity perspective. So uh, that perspective situates autism as part of natural human variation. So instead of saying that there's something wrong or broken or needs fixing with an individual that we need to intervene and change them, um, we should focus more on understanding and recognising their specific ways of orientating to the world and thinking about how we can adapt our environments to be more enabling of their individuality. So it's a different orientation and it has an important impact on the way that research is done. Specifically, uh, the inclusion of autistic voice is really, really important because historically it's not been there. And so it's been possible for some theories. There have been a, a number of notable theories uh, in recent years which have been quite stigmatising for autistic people to deal with. And Sammy was talking there about part of the challenge for autistic people is what you're experiencing can't really be understood from the outside if you don't have those same differences in cognitive or uh, perceptual experiences. You can't really see that someone else is experiencing the world differently. And managing the stereotypes, the representations of you, a huge social challenge, which you, you're adding on to an already difficult world to navigate for autistic people. So that's the kind of background of where we got to uh, and, and why this question of how do we do research with autistic people rather than on autistic people is really, really important. So uh, that sort of brings us to our project, the Sandbox project and what we've been doing. So I thought I'd just talk a little bit about that and then move on to kind of two really exciting questions, which is what should or could autism research look like? And then an even bigger question, which is what would a more enabling society look like for autistic people? So with our Sandbox project, as I said at the start, we were aiming to create a space that um, is more participatory. So you might hear this term participatory research 
uh, used a lot in the social sciences. And the idea is that uh, instead of studying people from the outside, um, so in natural science, you tend to be uh, the observer is removed from the phenomena that they observe. Within participatory research, it's recognizing that there's an opportunity to co-construct knowledge with others, and that if you do so, you'll actually develop more rich and meaningful knowledge about uh, those particular things that you're interested in. Uh, so participatory research is a term that uh, is kind of like an umbrella term, so it applies to a broad range of uh, different practices. And within there, you might have something called emancipatory research, which is the idea that we're trying to recognise that there's a power imbalance and uh, we're trying to remove some of those constraints that are holding back. So the Sandbox project is a really nice uh, opportunity, given uh, my own background in autism research um, and having done most of my PhD at Matthews Hub, when did I start back in uh, 2013? It was so a while ago, but um, it was a really good opportunity to bring together different expertise. And I think that is one of the issues that uh, is also being grappled with wh whose expertise is being sort of recognized in the process of how we create knowledge. Because, yes, there's academic expertise, but obviously lived experience is a really important uh, part of that process. And also the expertise of other people that may be involved, such as parents um, or carers. Uh, bringing together all the different forms of expertise and recognizing that I think is part of creating more holistic balanced knowledge rather than knowledge that might be a little bit biased towards particular styles of thinking or particular interests. So the Sandbox project um, has taken an approach for trying to create a space where members of Matthews Hub can critically reflect on what they would like the research relationship to be and what's really key within that is uh, actually the ability for us as researchers or hybrid researchers to be transformed ourselves. And I think uh, this is one of the key sort of takeaways uh, so far with the project. Um, it's important that when you define what you want to research, um, it's not sort of closed off to being changed later on, because it's very often that, uh, you know, if you only ever go and find the things you say you're going to find, then you've not really developed new knowledge, you've just sort of extended what you already knew. And uh, the idea of participatory research is that to some degree it's exploratory. You're trying to develop something that wasn't there before. That's sort of the, some of the background uh, to uh, the Sandbox project. We've been doing a few different things. The self-transformation is actually, if I'm you know, thinking about one of the other major takeaways, is, is kind of the main point of the project today. Our conversations as a team have been really interesting and in fact we've changed already directions in a number of different ways. So originally we had this idea that we would run research-based workshops with members of Matthews Hub to uh, help improve their understanding of the research process and then we'll be able to move towards thinking more critically about different ways in which we could do research, gather data, build those relationships of trust in more creative ways that might appeal to people's interests. That was an initial template for how we might do that. What we realised uh, from attending Matthews Hub, so we have this anthropologist might call a period of immersion where we're uh, attending Matthews Hub regularly every week. That's so that we can be more familiar to members, but also so that we can understand more about what their needs and priorities are. So we're not gathering any data in this period of immersion, but we are using it to sort of build those relationships of trust and also reflect on our own aims and objectives. One of the things that emerged very quickly from there was this very large gap that exists between the daily lives of autistic people and the kind of research that's actually been done by research institutions. So even having a conversation about 
running research-based workshops was already not quite filling that gap because it was assuming that members had a an interest uh, in research that they had perhaps some awareness of what the research process might be but also it was kind of forgetting the fact that you're asking people to leave their zones of comfort to take part in an activity that they might not otherwise be doing and the more that we've been doing this period of immersion the more we've recognized that uh, perhaps too often research tries to orchestrate these kind of situations to pull participants into to try and gather data and perhaps there are more opportunities for thinking about how to embed data collection within existing practices and I think that's particularly true for autistic people that may have ex extreme discomfort from leaving any kind of comfort zone. Yeah I, th I think that's just, just add to that you know the the, the the social nights that take place on Thursdays and Friday nights of Matthew so can be as many as uh, 40 autistic people from the age of 18 up to I don't know whatever 40s early 50s I guess perhaps for a lot of people People, it's been a really big deal, you know, for them to come to a social event like that. They've been on quite a journey to be able to kind of like get there, you know. And uh, you know, and there's there's people at all sorts of um, they're on different parts of the kind of like journeys, I guess, like of which my views is a part. And I think it's you know, it's uh, really mindful. I think when researchers are working in those kind of environments, to be sort of like mindful that you know that a lot of the people there are. You know, they're just doing kind of almost what they need to kind of like kind of get by and anything else is a sort of like perhaps one step too far. And that I think leads on to a second really big takeaway from the project. We've recognised the need, well, we were doing it anyway, but we've now sort of formally uh, explicitly recognised there's a need to slow down the research process, uh, particularly for autistic people, because traditionally with research, you have a period of time where you have funding and everything's always being pushed to the maximum in terms of margins. So there tends to be quite intensive recruitment of participants and then data collection and analysis and moving on. The space for like exploration, for self-reflection, for uh, truly developing uh, relationships of trust isn't really there because to do that you need much more time than um, is usually allocated and so we found that part of initially we were going to do a period of immersion for about six weeks but then we realized there's no we should just keep doing it because you know those relationships are you can't even in that time period develop the relationships you need but also there's something about sustainability like we didn't want to be researchers that just sort of come in from the outside, gather data, then leave, as often happens. We're much more engaged than that. Um, I think it's difficult, Brett, as well, for, for, for people sort of not to feel like a subject rather than a participant, if they're a sort of a, a subject of like, almost like what you describe as like an academic hit and run exercise. Do you know, you know, and I think that immersion of a greater period, the data gathered is going to be far richer and far more representative of the views of autistic people than you could possibly do in such a short time. Absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant. So that's what we've been doing. We've been uh, continually updating along with that. Sort of the third big takeaway was we've we've developed a new methodology for keeping track of where we're changing our ideas, because it became really clear that this this is actually the, the tool that's missing from a lot of the co-collaborative projects that are out there is a clear sort of transparency about who 
comes up with what ideas and where did you get rid of an idea and why and why, why did you change direction? Because that's all part of the process. So often research thinks about outcomes, but actually it's it's the process of how we're, we're doing this that is the most important to document. So we've been developing a new way of mapping all of our dialogue as a research team and sort of highlighting turning points in our ideas. So it's still ongoing. It's still an ongoing project and uh, there's definitely scope for uh, extending it uh, in the future, uh, perhaps in the form of a PhD. Um, but uh, it's yeah, so it's still ongoing, but it's certainly been already a fascinating exercise in uh, I know it's it's really helped to develop my ideas as a researcher and we're excited to see where it's going to go. But I wanted to ask a question now back to both of you, which is what do you think autism research could or should look like uh, in the future? So uh, Sammy, shall I uh, go over to you for that question first? I mean, I don't know about should for everyone, but I know I'm particularly interested in things like phenomenological research specifically uh, looking at the experiences of people, which I find is quite relevant with looking at research into autistic people because historically it's been one of the things that has been missing really from autism research is the voices of autistic people, their experiences and actually understanding how they felt, what people have been through. And so it's something I'd like to continue researching in the future. I know there's a few recent studies now and hopefully in the future there will be more just physically asking the autistic community what their priorities will be and then perhaps using that to direct future research. When it comes to research of the more scientific kind like looking at things, looking at ways to change things uh, like quality of life improvements, things like that, research that's looking to come up with things like that rather than exploratory research can be more guided then by the priorities of the actual community which I do potentially agree you know in theory is a good idea and uh, hopefully is something that will uh, continue to be helpful. Thanks Sammy. How about you Carl? I'd like to see a greater participation of autistic people in research and it'd be easier for autistic people to enter into research what I'm talking about, easy for people to go and kind of get published, I think, is, is, is one of the things I'd like to see. You know, it's if you're outside of an institution, it can be quite difficult to get yourself kind of like noticed. And that's what kind of parks about to get a participatory autism research community, Daniel Milton, that leads about getting autistic people, you know, we otherwise aren't attached to some sort of academic institution be able to get their work published and be able to get it noticed. I have a personal interest in uh, an interest-based uh, interest account of autism, what we call monotropism. That's what, my own particular interest. Excellent. And I think maybe, you know, from my perspective, I'd like to see more uh, diverse ways in which knowledge is uh, produced and disseminated and engaged with the academic process tends to go through what's known as peer review, where you write up your paper according to um, the, the conventions for doing so uh, within your discipline, and then you submit it to a journal, and then it goes out for review to experts, um, which is intended to be a very rigorous process. The challenge of that is often your this knowledge is being published in places that can't be easily accessed, particularly by the communities that are being uh, researched. And it's also published in a way that's not accessible uh, using language and perhaps methodologies that are quite hard to grasp. And I think that for me has been one of the challenges I've sort of grappled with throughout 
my career to date, which is how can we develop the knowledge in a way that's going to actually have meaningful impact because people can engage with it, they can interact with it, they can do something with it, uh, they can provide feedback about it, a live knowledge rather than something that's sort of crystallized in a paper somewhere behind a paywall uh, is hard to reach. So I think for me, I would like to see social science have more established ways of sharing their knowledge and making it more interactive as well. Benefit to autistic people, I think far too often sort of academics sort of like to talk to each other rather than talk to the kind of community and a lot of that sort of uh, often very valuable research and very valuable data isn't isn't disseminated out to the wider autistic community. I think it loses some of its value. Yes, exactly. So it's it's part of that process of trying to improve the alignment between the research being done and the priorities of the communities being researched. Yes, a really good point. One final question, which is even broader than the last one, which is what do you think an enabling society would look like for autistic people? I would say a society where the adjustments have already been put in place, where we've got environments that are already autism friendly, you know, where there's environments in the classroom, as an example, that are considered autism friendly environments for autistic children. Everybody else profits. I don't think that's the same in the workplace or or anywhere else, or anywhere that's sort of sensory adverse environment, you know, I think everybody kind of like struggles at, you know, like open plan offices, for example, you know, if you don't improve efficiency, you know, they just save on ground space and they make life a living hell for autistic people. And it's just probably lots of other people too. Often when we look for adjustments, you know, when we look for something small, that's why, you know, something to do with the environment often, softer lights, you know, the ability to be able to wear noise cancelling headphones or sit away from main thoroughfares or hot radiators or windows where the light's coming through, something like that. So an enabling society is where, where an adjustment is requested that it's not a big deal, that it's not seen as being something that's, a, you know, a barrier that autistic people are being in some way kind of like difficult. You know, I mean, one of the difficulties when, uh, which Sammy was talking about before about functioning labels is a lot of people sort of like equate sort of like high functioning autism with sort of like mild. Do you know, well, other mm -hmm. people have experienced my autism mildly, but that's not how I experience it. And when you look at the other end of the, of the, of the spectrum, and I don't, you know, you can't measure autism on a sliding scale. You need to think about spiking profiles or sliding scales. You talk about somebody's low functioning autism, you've dismissed them. You know, it's this deficit model where you focus on all the things a person can't do rather than looking at any kind of strengths. You know, we've got to sort of stop moving away from that medical model and start thinking about the strengths that people, autistic people have, and have a focus on them, a social model rather than a reductive model that, uh, yeah, we need to move away from. Thanks, Carl. And Sammy? I mean, I agree. I think just having a general level of knowledge in in most people about some adaptions you know that are reasonable and that people as Carl said shouldn't be a big deal something like some of the things Carl listed that um if requested that should just be fine and I mean just yeah having a level of knowledge about some of the differences and difficulties that can be encountered by autistic people I know I find like I said a lot of people assume because I come across as being, uh, you know, I know I, I don't have intellectual disabilities. I come across as being what people describe as high functioning. I know that means they assume that, as Carl said, a lot of people equate that with mildness and people assume that I don't then encounter difficulties. 
and then on the other hand when people do find out about some of the difficulties I have and problems I have that then colors their opinion of me and they will make assumptions about my intellectual abilities and things and just knowing that they are discrete things and it is true that people with autism can then have intellectual disabilities as well but they're not the same thing and that's uh and that having differences and difficulties for me doesn't have impact on my other other areas of functioning that I excel at. I don't get it often just with people knowing I'm autistic but then it's when they see like I know that people can think about what the, the idea they have in their head they think you know oh it's just a few differences just basically the same as everyone else but a bit quirky and then then if they do see me having any difficulties or learn about anything then they will change their opinion and and they will think it will colour their opinion on my other capabilities. Well, you see, the thing is, you mask your way through, don't you? Most of, on, on most occasions, even professionally, even within autism circles where I feel safe, I would still mask my way through. I'd be, you know, I would be disingenuous of me to kind of say otherwise. You know, nobody really sees us on our bad days. I don't think. More so for people with autism, but I know that everyone will do that to some extent. But I know that people will depending yeah on your competence at masking your way through will just assume that you don't have any difficulties and then when they do see anything like that it will change how they think about you really so just a baseline knowledge of the fact that these things are discrete and that having difficulty in one area doesn't mean other things I think would change people's lives and their abilities to you know ask for help and um, adjustments if they didn't think it would impact everyone's views on them. I mean, you shouldn't have to fight for him, should you? No. Exactly. It should just be automatic, shouldn't they? I mean, that's the mm. thing. You know, and if you realise as well, like, you know, if you've got sort of like, you know, uh, if conflict isn't your thing, and oh. it's not the thing for most autistic people, <laughs> is it? Do you know what I mean? And you think you might have to sort of argue the toss with somebody who's maybe resistant to learning, shall we say, then that's going to be a barrier, isn't it? that adjustment isn't going to be put in place, which might seem like only tiny to the uh, to wherever the line managers, but to the autistic person might be the biggest thing on the planet. Very true. Uh, thank you for that fantastic insight. Yeah, I think as, as you were saying there, whenever I've done autism training in the past, and it'll be the same for you, uh, Carl, because I, I know you do it as well, kind of the first thing you have to do is myth busting because there yeah. are so yeah. many negative stereotypes. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I was uh, to wave a magic wand, it would be just to delete all those stereotypes in the first place, because they really are kind of the hurdle. And the stereotypes come from a number of places. Science has contributed to them because, you know, we've had some unhelpful sort of oversimplified ideas about what yeah, yeah, autism yeah. is. Yeah, autistic people lack empathy, those kind of things, yeah. Yes, lacking empathy, being egocentric, yeah. being computational geniuses. Yeah. We get it from media as well. You know, the film Rain Man often ha ends up framing the way that people think about uh, all autism when that's a story about a savant, and savants are incredibly rare. We, I think, yeah. only have only have about 100 uh, documented savants in the world. So, yeah, there are all these stereotypes which autistic people have to navigate to, to even get to the point of a sort of level playing field of them being able to say you know uh, I need particular adjustments which as you were saying often aren't like massive things but they make a huge difference for the autistic person so yeah that's I, I guess it would be that it would be uh, removing the stereotypes but then just being less judgmental about people I think all society would benefit from that yeah. Um, yeah. just in general <laughs> 
That's what they say. You want to make one adjustment for autistic people, everybody benefits. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, humans form judgments because, uh, you know, the world's socially complex and they need to have, make some predictions about what to do. But th I think there's, you know, that there must be some ability to self-check and uh, Im improve people's critical thinking about, you know, are, are they jumping to conclusions? Can they really know the person just by looking at them or observing their behaviour? But I mean, that's just an idealistic view, isn't it? Uh, you know, a, a world where people have empathy, you know, equal levels <laughs> of empathy, which is never going to happen. But uh, best thing yeah. we can do is just surround ourselves with people. Well, we get these empathy. little, we get these little <laughs> tiny little bites of empathy every now and again. It's called autism aware. <laughs> <Just even body. laughs> <laughs> so this is the promise of things to come, sort of dangled in front of us for an hour once a year. So I think that brings us to the end of this podcast. I want to thank you both for uh, joining and providing your really invaluable insight about uh, this topic. I think this topic, although we've talked about autism in particular, I do think there are really wide implications for understanding other groups that have been omitted or had their voice marginalised or might be hard to reach. I, I think many of the things we're learning from the Sandbox project would transport well to other contexts. So hopefully it's been, it has wider significance uh, for our listeners as well. But uh, yes, thank you both for joining and thank you everyone for uh, listening in. It's been a pleasure.